0: The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.
1: This is Bonjour Chai, the circumspect about circumcision edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Lana Zakon in Montreal, and David Sklar in Calgary, we are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we will be talking with Eliyahu Ungar Sargon of Bruchim about Jews who are choosing not to circumcise their children, and we continue our book club with a charming work by Rick Salutin and his son Gideon. But first, how are you guys? Okay. Good.
0: I'm just always here. I think since I labeled my column the Jewish Nomad, my life has become more nomadic. It's like I put it out into the ether that that's what I want and suddenly I keep having all these gigs that are bringing me to Montreal every month.
1: Are you allowed to talk about the gig? Yeah,
0: yeah. I I, I do a lot of commercials, uh, radio ads. Mm-hmm. So I did a radio ad for National Bank that should be coming mm-hmm. out in about a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Must why put. I came in. And once I was coming in, I decided to come in for the week and see my family and come uh, do this live with Avi. Awesome.
2: Isn't that very typical of all the actors who end up moving from Montreal to Toronto? As soon as they do and uh, set up their 100%. new place, they get jobs all back in Montreal. I know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, well, today, though, is Remembrance Day, which is a, a much bigger deal here in Canada than it is in other countries. It's Veterans Day in the U.S. and they don't make that big, as big a deal about it. Um do you guys? Uh, what, what do you guys think about when you when you think about November 11th, the 11th hour, or the 11th day? David, you got anything?
2: Uh, you know what? To be honest, usually it's quite disconnected, obviously, from my day-to-day life. That being said, though, I, I also work as a recreational therapy aid worker. So I was at a senior's residence this past week on one of the COVID units. Uh, and there are quite several veterans who are, who are there. So it was really nice to talk to them. They were doing events for Remembrance Day this week as well. So it was really nice just to spend time with them, Listen to their stories as they were being asked. Family was coming in. It was a really nice, very personal experience for me to really hear it directly from veterans' mouths. Yeah, uh,
1: I've always had an affinity for it. I always liked the poppy. Um, I remember in the States where the, the poppy was never available. I would always save really? my, I would save one from year to year to year. No, it's a Canadian thing. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, right, in right. Flandersfield, the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row. You didn't have to memorize that, no? It's, I mean, I, I didn't I've heard
0: it in school. We, we said it. I didn't memorize it. Um,
1: it's a good poem. It's a beautiful moment. It's World War One, Vimy Ridge, all, all yeah, of this yeah, yeah. stuff. Um, and... Um you know, it was always a great marker of Canadians, like, finding other Canadians in uh, in the States <laughs> when, like, November would roll around and you'd pull out your saved poppy that you have as a relic, like, in a box. But here's there.
2: my beef with the poppy. Um, but it it always falls off. Mm-hmm. You cannot go more than two days it until it falls fall off. And is that a marketing or thing where they want yourself to make sure? With it. But, absolutely. Well, well,
1: I want a poppy that stays on for at least two weeks. Listen, there are poppy staying on hacks, and uh, I don't want to get into them right now because... Uh, Beyond the scope of this discussion, but you can we can we can talk offline about some good hacks for keeping your poppy on. Um, but it's it's a moment, and I think it's actually a, it's a profoundly Jewish moment when we remember um, those who we who have lost, and we honor those who um, came back and those who served. Right, and um, I, I love the fact that many congregations do do something in the Shabbat leading up to it. Mm. Um, And um, many Jewish veterans. Um, There are are fewer and fewer Jewish veterans these days um, because there are fewer Jews that serve currently serve in the armed forces, um, and the Jews that served when they were drafted in um, in World War II in Canada are getting older, and they are not as around as they used to be. But uh, those that are here, we it's a beautiful day, and uh, to honor them, and to salute them, and to remember the sacrifice that their brethren gave, um, so that we can um, record podcasts. Rick Salutin's son asked him where his name came from. The famed Canadian author, playwright, and journalist responded, the Bible. His name is Gideon, of course. What's the Bible was the son's natural response. And this led to years of conversations about the stories in the Bible, Rick's relationship to the book, and to the faith he grew up in. These conversations are now collected in a rollicking and charmingly illustrated book called, appropriately, Gideon's Bible. A father and son discuss God, the Bible, and life, and it is out on ECW Press. What did you guys make of this book?
0: Well, first off, I have to say that the cartoons were brilliant. They were so beautifully drawn. And I loved how at the beginning he talks about um, being younger and, and studying uh, Torah and Talmud and how he loved the commentary all the way around. And then quickly I noticed that that was the way that they styled the book. And they have these cartoons, like a comic strip, almost going around as if that's like the Rashi or the commentary. And I thought that was really, really brilliantly done.
2: Mm-hmm. No, it was so fun to read. I got through with it in, in one day. And it was it was. It was so nice to revisit a lot of these stories from Genesis that I had forgotten and to sort of start to see the connection between each story. It was the first time I saw how each story has this through line almost about uh, father and son and relationships to God. It was it was very inspiring. It also pushed a lot of boundaries. Like I, I was trying to
0: describe the book to someone and they were like, oh, is it a kid's book? And I was like. No, but I guess you could read it with your kids. But they do—they talk about a lot of things that may, some Jewish parents might not feel comfortable having their kids read. What, what did you take? So look, uh, yeah,
1: I, I've seen many authors. It's a—it's a familiar trope in publishing um, to do a rereading of the Bible. Um, I've seen some that are new, some that are older. Um, there's somebody that's doing one right now as a Substack um, that's really fascinating. And, you know, for many, many of these rereadings, they fail. They, they really fall flat. And it's, I think, because there's a lack of self-awareness of the prejudice that they bring to their reading, um, how the violence they do to the text often, right? It's not always, but they often do a lot of violent, like really, right. the rereading is like so extreme and, and reshaping, um, and that it isn't able to be borne by the text itself. The text can't support the weight of the rereading that they're attempting mm. to do. Um, now, the Bible itself has lasted so long, simply because it can, and It does have the ability to be read in so many ways. Um, Not all of them are right. And what I love is that your right and my right reading of the Bible are different. And that's a feature and not a bug. Um, What I found remarkable in this case about this book Mm -hmm. um, is that you have a father who has that Really great self-awareness yeah. right? about the the prejudice he brings to the book and a son who is completely naive um, and in the best way possible. And they meet in the middle and the conversations that they're having are so much the better for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I found so inspiring and so interesting about the book was that you see this really jaded conversation, you see this fresh um, take and the fresh take is really not because like oh we're protecting our kid and this kid doesn't have yeah, he's ideas very honest. Of the bible is really honest about it yeah um and the questions he gets to ask are not like pointed well the bible sucks because of this it's just this seems weird yeah, to our sensibility questions. because i don't know what the bible means and what it represents as a result of that
0: yeah i don't know if this is going too broad but what did you make of the way that god was personified in this book And I can be more more specific. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was, please uh, do. Went way too broad. Um, well, I, I have. A, I'll just go with my my opinion first, and then I would love to hear yours. But um, God was personified with gendered pronouns, um, which does happen a lot, and so God was referred to as He, and almost personified in a way that made it feel unaligned with my view of how I see uh, God in Judaism as more of like a force of creation as opposed to this deity who's like all powerful, which brings up like a whole other slew of, you know, debate and conversation. But it, it felt like it, if, if a non-Jew picked up this book, I think they would have a very different idea of what uh, God means to Jews than the one that I do. So it, it in some way it was subjective to the writer's uh, perception of God coming from these two different perspectives and a, uh, I was wondering if that was something you picked up on or not.
2: Well, it's interesting because I feel like the God of the Genesis stories uh, is is a particular type of unique God. And they discuss how God changes right throughout the Bible itself. So they sort of say, you know, either this is a God that interferes a lot with human destiny and, and, and choices. So I wonder if it would evolve if there was like a continuation of it with God in further books this feels like a god that is really controlling destiny and then pulling it a bit away it's interesting i didn't pick up so much on god being male in this version but it was very clear how women were well, less... was
0: he many many times which it, it happens in a, in a lot of translations and then there's like a, usually at the beginning of like a tanakh there'll be like a little note that's like we use he pronouns but really god is not a person and it's not really pronoun and i don't know so th-
1: the problem is i mean that's just this is a translation problem where, 100% where it's a translation god problem god is gendered in the Bible, in right. many
0: different ways, though, and that's why there's is, isn't that isn't that the case? No, but I'm
1: saying the word God, yes, right, is, is gendered, is, is, right? Is, is because that's how Hebrew right. is written. Yeah, and yeah. everything is gendered in the Bible, and right. that's that's the, you know we can get into that whole discussion about how do we degender um, Hebrew, and there's a whole movement around that. Yeah, but when you are translating the Bible, right, you end up using a lot of gendered language for God, and yeah. one can either choose to be again violently awkward and remove that gendered language Mm -hmm. and that just takes it away or acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff right Maimonides talks about how God doesn't have a hand right and God doesn't get angry yeah and yet all of this is there and so I think when you translate I don't have a problem with saying in a translation of the Bible itself to say Mm -hmm. he or or whatever in that way Um, but when talking about God as in a conversational way, to say God's self, right, would be a little mm. more or to say just keep referring to God might be a little more appropriate. Um, I think in this case, it didn't affect me nearly as much in, okay. as, as that because it's, it, it was it was more about the translation issue. Um, mm. and, and in that sense, because yeah. a big chunk of the book is just translations of the book of stories of Genesis. Um, yeah. And they clearly, deliberately leave it at the end of Genesis. And they are. Um, and I, I hope that there are more, more volumes forthcoming. Um, apparently, Gideon is a, uh, is a student at McGill. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah, so uh, we could have had him on at, at, now that we're doing everything. Per- yeah. um, you know, I found the, the, the critique that I had, and I'm curious your thoughts about the, what you thought about this, was that um, the illustrations really are great. Yeah. The Talmudic style of layout is really nice. It's a nice mm-hmm. touch. It's not really a graphic novel per se. Not 100%. My um, I mean, and again, there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you read Scott McCloud about what comics are and what comics aren't, and you can get into graphic novel theory. You know, one can say that the commentary is in a graphic novel style, because it is narrative, mm-hmm. it illustrated, and it progresses and, and things like that. Um, I found that it didn't, it didn't always work in that style. And I was hmm. wondering what other, how else this material could have been presented
0: in what uh, ways did you find it didn't work
1: I just found like the back and forth bubbles just oh yeah yeah if if, if most of the drawings are the father and the son back forth bubble bug, yeah. talk, talking talk to each other like maybe I mean he's a playwright maybe this could have been a really cool stage play maybe this could have been a podcast series I mean of course they hadn't recorded um, you know, their conversations as they were happening, this feels like this was, you know, reminiscing of conversations that they've had years after the fact or whatnot. Um, but I was curious, like, and I love the illustrations. It's beautiful. I, I'm a big fan of like putting things together. Uh, many graphic novel uh, attempts have been made with books of the Bible with Jewish works. And this, I'm going to definitely add this in there mm-hmm. um, as something that I appreciate and I will pull out to teach and, and do stuff with. Um, I was just curious how, Um, else the material could have been presented and it may have been more effective in some interesting way or not. I don't don't know if you thought.
2: No, I felt it quite very effective. It was a really easy, enjoyable read, especially with like the Midrash commentary all in these bubble thoughts that I could follow their relationship throughout at the same time as the story of Genesis was building. And I saw their arguments back and forth. I actually felt this was, was a wonderful way of doing the... The story
1: of Genesis. Like I said, I didn't think it was bad. I just I was curious about like the like medium. yeah, and if I was questioning the medium, then I then maybe mm. it wasn't like so as, nearly as immersive in in that sense. And I
0: I don't know uh, if it would work in those other mediums that you described. Like I can't. I think it, I think the fact that it is a book with the the pictures around because then you kind of you kind of have a choice. It's almost like there's two stories going on in the book. You can either read the the middle part, which is just like mm-hmm. the story of Beresheet. Or you could just read the comics, which is the story of the father and the son. And I think it's an interesting way to engage engage people, especially in an era where, you know, <laughs> I don't have stats on this, but I would imagine that people are, of a younger generation are maybe reading a little bit less than they used to. And when you have a book with pictures, it might entice people to read more.
2: What I really found interesting was it was, I, I saw Judaism sort of as this upstart movement, as they described in it itself, right? I sometimes think about our religion and Judaism is very old, very antiquated. But they sort of said this Judaism was a rebellion. It was an attack against old world rules. And, and that was really exciting to sort of see where this upstart religion comes in and starts trying to make its way in the world with all these other more ancient religions. It almost, it was like, it was, what did they say? Uh, they said it was good to undermine old rules, which I felt is what the book was doing. Well,
1: I thought that um, that was you know, really borne out because of the fact that Gideon is reading this in a very new light, and, and that's part of that new reading, because you know, we can often think about this book as like the 3,000 years of history that we put onto it. And we often just sit there and think about it with all the commentaries and all the ideas that were thrown onto it previously. Um, and this new reading, this fresh reading reminds us of that very point, which I think is a great point. Um, and to your point, Alana, I think that anything that we can do to get more people reading and more people reading Jewish books is a great thing. And so, yes, I highly applaud it. Um, and, uh, I liked it. I gave it a, I'm giving it a thumbs up. Um, You too?
0: Yeah, I'm giving it a thumbs up. Uh, David's uh, giving it a thumbs up. I wanted to bring up that in the spirit of Jewish Book Month um, and our Bonjour Chai book club, BCBC, um, I went to the Giller Prize Gala the other day and actually had a chance to talk to Margaret Atwood, who wrote the foreword, coincidentally, of Gideon's Bible. And we're going to play a little clip for you of my conversation with her. Hi, I'm Ilana from the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, we're actually covering Rick Salutin's uh, Gideon's Bible this week. And I just read your foreword today. And I was wondering, do you have a favorite Bible passage?
3: So I'll recommend a book to you, which is a great book. It's called God, a Biography. And it's just old. Just old, and it takes the view God is a character in a book. Oh, I like that. God well, is a character in the book. How do yeah, we know no. about characters in books? We know about characters in books because of what they say, what they do, what other people say about them and how their actions affect other people. So he takes that view and he goes through book by book. He's got the best thing on the book of Job that I have ever read. Wow. So why do we stick with the book of Job, a problematic book. <laughs> Fair enough. So once upon a time, as you probably know, and that's how I know Rick, I was at Camp White Pine, on Wally Shrine. And also at that camp was a proto-rabbi, being a rabbi, um, from New York, who had never been outside New York City and was, was in hell, and, and hell in Haliburton, Canada. Wow. So we became friends because I I helped him out his. and was... Um, problems involving <laughs> this place and driving crazy. <laughs> And he taught okay. me a swearing in two languages. <laughs> oh Hebrew and, Hebrew, Yiddish. Hebrew and Yiddish. do you remember any of the swears? <laughs> oh, yes I do, but I'm not gonna tell them to you. Um, so then many years later yeah. I was at the Smithsonian Institute. And this man comes up in the line to get his book signed, and he says, I am Gus Buchdahl. And I say, Gus, and he says, honey. (laughs) So then we go out for a drink afterwards, and I say, tell me about the book of Job. And he says the following classic lines. It says, the authorities are agreed. God does not come out of this with clean hands.
0: I like it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Nice to meet you.
1: Take care. Excellent. That was wonderful. We'd love to hear what you think about uh, the book. If you've read it and if you haven't, but you want to, uh, here is your chance. Uh, we have a copy to give away, and all you have to do is email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and we will pick one listener at random and send you a brand new copy of the book. Uh, you can read it, you can give it away, you can read it and then give it away because I know we all do that at some point, right? Um, just email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to Enter and uh, we will give away a copy of this book uh, to anybody, uh, not to everybody, but to one person from the people who email us. Um, and that is uh, Gideon's Bible A Father and a Son Discuss God, the Bible, and Life by Rick Salutin and Gideon Salutin. David. Hi! Now you know about watches. I'm learning. We're going to up your level, right? You got a basic watch now. (laughs) What else can you do with a watch, right? You can have a more it can tell the time time with it as we spoke about the basics of mechanical watches and being automatic um you can move up a level and find a more beautiful case for it a more beautiful face for it Um, that's where a mechanical watch becomes a piece of art sometimes is when the art of the inside is not reflected exactly right and and we see exactly that but but we see some interesting um face some interesting um bracelets some interesting dial um show itself off um and show off and, and represent itself as a beautiful watch, as a beautiful item that we can see on its own. So Seiko actually takes that to the next level and often really does beautiful um, finishes for a lot of their watches. And that's where you can take your watch buying from a Seiko 5 to a Seiko Presage or a Seiko with a beautiful porcelain like finished dial or one with like a nice engraving on the top that they really care about and is hand finished. Um, and that's where you're going to start spending a little bit more money um, from a basic watch to so the next level watch is being able to think about how you you can move your watches up what kind of watch would you say to yourself like oh i like the shape of that or I like the color of that
2: i'd like a watch that's sort of a reflection of my personality where it's not too over the top not too too many bells and whistles on it but really just gets me through the day I and that's say. the kind of
1: thing that you would tell somebody at atelier lu when you pick up the phone and call them and say hey i'd like a new watch and they will guide you towards uh, some several uh, amazing options that's true uh, and if you are uh listening to our show you can use the code
0: b-o-n 18 at checkout for 10 percent off your order at com.
1: so AtelierLou um always been a great sponsor of the show um that is how they think they will try to find you the right watch for your personality and not just um to uh sell you the best thing that they can or the most expensive thing that they can so go to com and uh get your watch fix going The first time I came across the idea of intactivism in general and within the Jewish community was in 2011 when Eliyahu Angar Sargon, a friend and neighbor of mine, uh, when we were both living in Chicago, released his film entitled Cut, Slicing Through the Myths of Circumcision. Eli is a founding member of the board of Bruchim, an organization devoted to fostering welcoming spaces within the Jewish community for Jews who are not circumcised. Eli is still a good friend, even though we don't speak as often as we'd like, and he is now a filmmaker in Los Angeles where he joins us from today. Eli, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you Avi,
4: it's a real pleasure to be here.
1: So uh, let's start uh, in the wake of the recent article by Gary Stengart in the New Yorker about his own botched circumcision and his resulting position against circumcision, a new wave of articles and social media posts about Brit Mila and the Jewish community has serviced. And Bruchim has had its launch, Waiting right into the debate. Uh, first of all, what I want to know is, was it merely serendipity that you chose to launch at this moment, or did you take the opportunity presented and run with it? And uh, what can you broadly tell us about the state of Jewish intactivism in 2021?
4: <laughs> yeah, so it was absolutely serendipitous that uh, Steingart's article came out around the same time that we were planning to launch our website. Um, and that was just good fortune uh, for our organization. Um what can I tell you about the state of Jewish intactivism in 2021? Well, I can tell you that Bruchim is a very exciting new organization that is seeking to sort of bring, um, uh, and, and for your audience, intactivists, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a kind of um, portmanteau between intact and activism. Um, and so intactivists are what you may have uh, known as anti-circumcision activists in the past, it's kind of a rebranding that was done to sort of be more positive sounding.
0: Right, yeah, I saw that on the website using the word intact. I hadn't heard that before.
4: Yeah. That so uh, the Bruchim is really a kind of new uh, organization. We're very much not anti circumcision, that's sort of explicitly not part of our mission. We're uh, trying to advocate for Jews who have made the decision already not to circumcise their children. To be um, more accepted and welcomed into Jewish spaces. That's our mission. And uh, that's our approach. Yeah, over the pandemic, we started meeting virtually. We had uh, monthly Zoom meetings that sort of were growing over time. And uh, yeah. That's that's who we are and that's what we do right now.
2: Well, I was just curious about the journey, sort of that led you to founding Bruhim in the first place.
4: Yeah, it's um, Avi mentioned that uh, back in I think he said 2011. That was when I went on tour with my film, and actually, I actually finished making it in 2007. So this is a long time ago now, and I'm dating myself a bit. But um, I made a film uh, called "Cut," slicing through the myths of circumcision. It was a doc, feature-length documentary about. Uh, infant male circumcision and Jewish identity. I was just coming out of art school and I had spent three years in medical school also, so um, it, it, it felt like a natural topic and it was always something that I was super interested in. Um, circumcision to me is a really interesting example that forces what to me seems like an obvious conflict between secular humanist ethics and the Jewish tradition. And I find subjects like that endlessly fascinating. And so I made a film about um, circumcision and Jewish identity. And I, uh, I took it uh, all over North America and it's now traveled all over the world and it's taught in some academic settings also. And so as I went around with my film and started these conversations. I networked with a lot of people and you get to know all of the Jews involved. And fast forward to the pandemic and we all felt that it was time to really um, take a different approach. Instead of having a conversation about the ethics of circumcision, which is what most of us had been doing for a very, very long time, we thought it would be um, more interesting and more valuable to the Jewish community to start talking about inclusion of Jews who have made this decision. And that was kind of the genesis of Bruchim.
0: Right. Since you uh, launched Bruchim, have you received any pushback from the community at large?
4: So it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and we're very new. Um, we've only been on the scene. Our website, I should say, has only been on the scene now for I think about a month Um, and, uh, Avi mentioned that the Steingart article came out around the same time. So there's kind of a conversation happening organically about this subject. And I have to say that we haven't experienced a ton of pushback just yet. I think things are new. So, you know, give it time kind of thing. (laughs) I'm sure it'll come. But I also think that this approach of talking about this from a, a perspective of inclusion means that some of the normal pushback that we might expect that I've experienced, you know, for well over a decade now having conversations about this. I, I think it's going to be a little different um, because we're trying to have a different conversation. I
1: mean, in some way, what you're doing is what um, the successful movement towards acceptance of uh, interfaith families um, is has been doing, which is stop focusing on the halacha around the actual marriage and whether that's an acceptable thing and say, look, once this has happened, um, you know, we should be including these people in our communities regardless. And in some way that after the fact sort of thing is noble, but in some, you know, let's be honest, there's no movement of bruchim unless you have people who are consciously making that decision to say I'm not circumcising my children.
4: That's right. And I think that's where the pushback's going to come from, right? Once we get through the layers that we're talking about, some people are going to feel threatened by what we're doing. Some people are going to see it as normalizing something that they don't want normalized. But when I think about inclusion, uh, Avi, I you know, I I think about it in two directions. Obviously, there's the the need that we're serving for these families who feel alienated from the Jewish community. And, you know, there's a growing number of those. uh, And we can talk about that if you'd like. But I I just want to bring attention to it from the other direction, too. You know, I come from an Orthodox background. And sometimes I kind of marvel at the exclusion of women from Torah spaces. And I, I think to myself, you think that you're sort of being super progressive as an Orthodox person by allowing a few women to have a little place where they could study Talmud. And what I, what I hear is, you think you can afford to not have 50% of your population studying Torah? Like, that to me is, is the direction that doesn't get represented enough. And I feel the same way about this, that you think you can afford to alienate Eliyahu on Sargon's from your communities you can't we're not we're on an all hands all hands on deck kind of situation the world is melting down in multiple ways we have massive crises going on now we can't afford to exclude these people
0: yeah something that i thought was really interesting that i read on the website um was the whole concept of don't ask don't tell because it is something that comes up a lot right don't ask, don't tell if someone's driving uh, to Shul on Shabbat. And so on the website, um, it sounds like you're making a commitment to have those families be immediately included. How do you actually go about doing that um, so that they walk in knowing that that they do feel safe and they don't have to be hush hush about it?
4: Yeah, I mean, don't ask, don't tell is one of those things that I can't think of an example where it actually works, <laughs> right? Like we can think about other kinds of contexts where don't ask, don't tell has been attempted and it never really works because – and, and you know, with circumcision, there's such a taboo around the subject anyway that it kind of lends itself to a don't ask, don't tell policy. But what that ends up doing is you end up with situations where children are body shamed or parents are shamed for making this decision and, and end up feeling alienated. And so our vision at Bruchim around this is we have a what we call a concierge service. And what we eventually want to do is be able to provide parents who have made this decision with a list, a master list of communities, camps, schools that have come on board with our mission that will that, so that those parents can know and those families can know that they don't have to engage with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. They don't have to worry about a diaper change at a daycare or something like that, that actually we have a kind of, you know, a list a master list of all of the places that are openly willing to be welcoming of them as full members of the Jewish community.
1: I mean, so Don't Ask, Don't Tell has worked for circumcision for probably 2,000 years. Nobody checks the circumcision. People just assume Um, And in that sense, like that's where I think the reticence is coming from, where this like people, you know, don't necessarily want to talk about because it's just like, why do I have to talk about it if the if it's there already? If the if I just assume that every person, every male person walking to the synagogue already has is already has a brief milah. um, What happens when a plurality of people? no longer have a brit milah that's when the don't ask don't tell becomes untenable and that's when it becomes uncomfortable and that's where i think the pushback comes because there are going to be congregations that are going to want to say right halachically it may be acceptable to give this person an aliyah or a bar mitzvah or whatnot um, but we don't want to for larger social grounds and then you might see a schism and that's what i'm curious if you've guys thought about this
4: yeah no i mean i think that's sort of so, so the, just a quick correction from my perspective, I, I think there are places that you say people don't check and places don't check, but, um, you know, we have, we, one of the things that we do at our monthly meeting is we have people tell stories and I've heard a lot, again, this is at this stage anecdotes, right? And part of Bruchim's mission is actually to do some social research and provide actual numbers on this subject because you know let's face it like we no one actually knows how many Jews are opting out how many Jews are opting in how many Jews are doing it in the hospital versus having it done by like these are all questions that we want answered and part of our kind of one of our midterm goals is, is actually to start providing that information because uh, I think it's it's super interesting but I can tell you anecdotally that there are uh, parents and and this it's fascinating to me that this tends not to happen as much in the Orthodox world. Um, this might be a self-limiting issue, but we do hear stories from the conservative, capital C conservative, uh, Jewish communities where they are kind of checking and sometimes acting punitively. Uh, and there's a long history of this in sort of Jewish responsa and halachic decision making about can this issue be used as a a sort of a, a wedge, uh, a fulcrum to try and press on other Jewish identity issues. But the sad truth is, I know people personally who have made this decision and then 12 years, 13, 14 years later, uh, so they made this decision not to circumcise their son and then they want to have their daughter bat mitzvah in a conservative synagogue. And the rabbi makes an ex- a public example out of them for not having done something 12 years ago that has nothing to do with the daughter, but we won't let this, this girl be bat mitzvah in our synagogue. And that happens more than you might think. That almost
2: feels like they're shaming... It feels like they're shaming the family then for a decision that was made long time ago. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, I, and I'm curious because it just feels like circumcision is such a, a ritual or a tenant of Judaism that if you're going to do anything at all, you can ignore the Sabbath, you could not keep kosher, but if you're going to do the bare minimum... It feels like circumcision is that thing. It feels like a a very tenuous or a very feels like a big struggle that a lot of future generations are going to have. When we were, you know, when we were meeting, I was thinking, okay, if I have a son, what would I do in the future? And I think I have a lot of questions about moving ahead with circumcision. It feels like this is like a real big struggle right now within the Jewish community.
4: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question because I think a lot of people have that that reaction to this to this rite. They they feel like it's something that's core and it's like a really important part of the Jewish tradition. Of course, you know, any familiarity with the Jewish tradition will tell you that we've, you know, we've got two Jews and three opinions. And circumcision is no exception to that. So there are parts of the Jewish tradition in which circumcision is really important, right? So like the mystical and Hasidic sides of the tradition, they put a, an enormous amount of emphasis on circumcision as like a huge mitzvah. And of course, there are plenty of uh, Talmudic sources and Midrashic sources that sort of sing the praises of circumcision and talk about how important it is. But if you think about the rationalist side of the tradition, so Maimonides, for example, for him, it's, it's another commandment. It's another mitzvah. And, and I, I often think back to we had a, our world premiere of uh, my film at the University of Chicago's Hillel, and uh, Rabbi Asher Lopatin was one of the uh, panel members on the Q&A. And, you know, he saw the film and we were having this discussion and he said, OK, so maybe if you're getting into Judaism, maybe make Shabbos, Shabbat, your mitzvah, not circumcision. Yeah, that's OK. That's OK. And I thought that was great. And it's also apt, of course, because Shabbat is also described as a as a covenant in the Torah. But, but more to the substance of your point, I think there's a sense... If we get beyond the kind of nerdy, you know, Talmudic, you know, and halachic discussion, there's a there's a kind of anthropological sense around circumcision in the Jewish community that this is tied to Jewish identity. And that's a real thing. Um, and and I, I think it's not unique to the Jewish community, too. Like, I, I, I'm i familiar with cutting practices all over the world. And there's something about, you know, making a body modification that really does um it's it's a very sticky identity marker, and across multiple cultures, we see this. Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: but by
1: the so way, you, that's a real thing. You were and talking. It's not
4: particularly religious.
1: You were talking about this as a feminist thing, right? Where you are talking about women in Torah. thinking about that. And yeah. um, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, that the discussions around Brit Mila do not include women, and this idea that this is an identity marker for Jews, um, you know, often forgets to add that it's an identity marker for jewish males or jewish male identified individuals or however you want to define that and um and there's something that leaves women out of the discussion in a huge way that um a lot in and of itself with the discussion around it can and should be discussed or should be rethought um cast that with that lighting you know in mind
0: yeah i i read yeah, I, I read something about that yesterday too and i was reading i, I hadn't heard about these other alternatives like the breach shalom or the people cutting open a pomegranate like i was reading up on on a bunch of different situations um and, I, and it's interesting because now that i'm thinking about it if i had some kind of body mutilation like now it's making me think about you know, would I want to do that to my daughter? Whereas like I have it in my head that I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm for sure going to give my, my son a bris if I have a son. But it's funny how like that doesn't seem to apply when I think about it for myself. I just like an interesting thought experiment. No, that's
4: that's fascinating and important. Um, And that, that that's, that's a great little thought process you had there. I think maybe one of these days. Yeah, no, no, no. So going back for a second to the, the conversation we were having about the different parts of the Jewish tradition and which part emphasizes circumcision more versus which part emphasizes it less, right? Um, if you think about it, not to put too fine a point on this, but the more emphasis you place on circumcision, the less important women become, right? <laughs> because they don't do it. So the more important circumcision is from your kind of Jewish well shang from your Jewish uh, worldview, the less important women are in your Jewish worldview. It's just, it, th- there's no way around that, right?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I think that in the in the conservative movement, brit milah is still a very fundamental concept, and yet um, it's, about, it, it, it's about as egalitarian as it can get um, without actually circumcising women um, in the conservative movement. But I'm saying everything else is open to women. And, um, you know, that to me is where I see the big, big pushback, as you said, is within the Halachic movements. You don't have a lot of you don't have any halachic rabbis within your rabbinic advisory board at Bruchim. Um, what I found fascinating uh, preparing for this is that I couldn't find, and I, I didn't do a huge exhaustive search. um, but there was a lot of rabbis. And rabbis from the liberal and um, traditional, and the halachic and non-halachic denominations that w- were willing to like give me information on background, but weren't willing to come and talk about this um, in public. Um, and I think that that says something really interesting. Um, I think that the halachic movements have to are going to have to grapple with this at some point and contend with it. Um, I mean, I personally think that they're going to come out on the right side of this and say that um, there there might be reason to exclude in some way or another people that are aren't you know that do not have a um, but, you know, that being said, I think that, there, you know, I personally am in this, you know, this weird middle ground where I do like to include as many people as possible. Um, I do think that halachic, you know, ceremonies like this and, and rituals are in some way ways in which we work on the particularistic versus the universal. Um, and I'm I'm wondering where the particularistic forms um, of Judaism are. That you know, when we take some of the things that are so basic and we put universalize them and say, well, this doesn't have to be part of Judaism. Well, then, what are the things that have to be part of Judaism as a result of that? Right. Once we take big, big pieces, and I'm, I'm sure this is not this is not a new question, but right. And I'm not, you know, I'm not equating not circumcising to like apostasy and, and Christianity and stuff like that. I, I'm not making that moral equivalence at all. But there are clearly lines that we make as particularistic Jews. Um, and crossing this one um, seems to be uh, one step too far for a lot of rabbis, even though they don't want to talk about it. And that in and of itself is, is worthy of another discussion.
4: So, first of all, Avi, you're welcome to join our. Um our rabbinical advisory council and become the first uh, halachic rabbi on our RAC. That would be wonderful.
1: Only if I agreed with the position, (laughs) which (laughs) again, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with entirely completely. I I, I
0: think you bring up a really (laughs) interesting point because I was grappling with all of this myself and I've had many times in my life where I have had to have the hard conversation uh, because of relationships I've been in with people who weren't Jewish and had very, very different relationships to what circumcision means to them. Um, and it made me actually have to think about, like, what does this mean to me? But fundamentally, it's it's so ingrained. And I felt like it was something that was important and an important marker. But then at the same time, you brought up a really important point uh, before, Ellie, about inclusion. And I think it's the same with interfaith. It's the same with LGBTQ+. Um, it's the same with a lot of different uh, people in our community who may not want to attend events or may not want to be part of the community if they don't feel welcome. So it kind of it, it really is a, a difficult situation to unravel.
4: I mean, from my perspective, there's also an asymmetry at the at the core here, which is if you make this decision for your child to circumcise them, then there's no choice later on right so there's an asymmetry in the choice that you're making whereas if you leave your child intact if they choose later on in life to circumcise themselves because they see something beautiful in that mitzvah they can do that they can make that decision so there's this fundamental asymmetry built into but, it
1: but the asymmetry works in the other direction just i thought as much, that also right? it's you know it's a yep. morning with some bagels and locks versus general anesthesia And a major, you know, surgery.
4: So I I don't, I I know that that's the, that's sort of the, um, that's the perception out there, right? That an adult circumcision is, is, is a much bigger deal than an infant circumcision. But I've challenged that in multiple places and I'll challenge it here too. Um, First of all, there's a there's a different kind of asymmetry that's going on than the one that I was just talking about, which is when you're an adult, you can psychologically prepare yourself for a surgery. You can get the kinds of analgesia that you were just referring to. You can get general general anesthetic Um, when you're an infant. You get none of that. Not only can you not prepare yourself psychologically for something that is a very painful and traumatic early experience, but we, as people who want to make it an easier procedure, right, like if we're, if we're thinking about good people who don't want, to, who want to minimize the pain to the baby, the tools at our disposal are much less than when we're talking about an adult. So I just want to push back a little bit on the notion that it's, it's a bigger deal when you're an adult.
1: Jewish day school is a traumatic experience that lasts for like a decade plus, and yet we impose that on our children, <laughs> right? There's a lot of things that we impose on our, on our next generation about our faith. Right, that they don't have a choice about,
4: um, that they're free to walk that away from. That might be an argument against Jewish day school, <laughs> not an argument for Probably.
2: circumcision. <laughs> Pulling on strings here a little bit. Well, I'm just curious, too. It's like there, there are decisions that parents have to make, and we just don't know the ramifications that they will make on the baby in life, whether in it's either direction. You know, a vaginal birth or a cesarean, in either direction, yeah. too. I mean, sometimes the parents just have to make these decisions early on and let's see what happens in the future.
4: Right, but this isn't one of those decisions is kind of what I would say to that, right? I, I don't see, and I, I can't think of any other body modification that would fall under the category of it has to be made when the child is eight, day, eight days old as opposed to leaving it up to them to make a decision when they get to an age where they can make a decision. So it's true that there are certain kinds of decisions that have to be made, that you know, there's a moral and an ethical case that they have to be made at a certain age i just don't see why this has to be one of them
1: yeah i mean again i mean, this we we've disagreed about this as i i'm still friends with him this is a, what we refer to as is an argument for the sake of heaven um i think that there's a, oftentimes body modifications that we do we we pierce our, our children's ears at very early ages often um and again you've gone through these arguments back and forth i think i it, it it's time to get beyond that but like I think that at its core what it comes down to is that people believe that we should be we have the right to um, do something religious on our future generation on our ne- on our children um, that is um, that is our prerogative to do and if you know it's, it, it comes down to a question of whether it's violent and um, harmful or not and there are people that do see that and that's where Bruchim is coming in and um, you know and and then there are people that don't and I think a lot of people don't um, I I know anecdotally, I mean, you you're in a different situation where people are coming to you anecdotally and telling you um, things because you're the, the maker of cut. And I'm the I'm a rabbi, and I know anecdotally from rabbis um, that very few of them actually have people come to them with these discussions about what will happen if my child, if my son is not circumcised. Um, and, and and but you know again, that's where um, things are. What, what I'd like to really just you know wrap up with and, and think about is. Um, what happens in your mind? Like, what are the arguments for circumcision? Like, wh- why do you, th- are are we at the point where you think that it's something that only adults should be making? Um, is there a value in circumcision in general, um, but only not for children? Um, and, and again, Brookhine is not about this. It's about fostering these spaces, I understand. But clearly, like we said, the step back is to recognize that that's where it's at. What do you think is
4: the role of Brit Mila in the 21st century? So, Personally, and I, I've said this many times, and my position on this hasn't really changed much over time. I, I I'm not against brit La, you know, qua brit La. My my issue is infant circumcision. If a, if a person grows up and decides that they want to perform this mitzvah on themselves, more power to them. And I, I would actually argue that there's a there's an advantage to doing it as an adult from a religious perspective because you can actually apprehend and appreciate the mitzvah, versus when you're an infant and you're just not aware of what's happening to you. So for me, uh, that that's just sort of an obvious ethical line. I don't see a lot of downsides to it. But I think circumcision is still a very taboo subject, um, not only in the Jewish community, but, but for sure in the Jewish community too. And the problem with taboo subjects is that they kind of breed all kinds of traumas and difficult psychological suppressions and unhealthy conversations. And and part of the work that I've been trying to do around this issue is to raise what is clearly a taboo subject out of the taboo and into a place where we can have constructive, intelligent, high-level, emotionally intelligent conversations about it. And I think we desperately need that in the Jewish community. I think we need to stop suppressing these conversations, we need to have them in healthy contexts and we need to stop shaming the people who make these decisions
1: thank you Ellie this has been wonderful um, like I said we um, we may disagree about some of these points but it's uh, the, the fact of raising questions and I, I actually had people tell me don't do these types of interviews don't do this interview specifically <laughs> don't give people like this uh, uh, a platform uh, it's not right and I'm like I, I can fundamentally disagree I actually think that the court of public opinion is where these disagreements can and should um, be made um, I may personally like you. I may personally think that your organization may not succeed at the same level Um, and and I think the court of public opinion is where it's going to be fought and maybe in five years you're going to come back and say well you know what we tried this and it turned out that it was a lot fewer people um, that were actually interested in this and a lot fewer congregations and we're still here but but we really you know didn't make the dent that we thought that we would because people are still attached to it Um, and maybe I'll be wrong and it'll be like you know intermarriage where interfaith relationships have become much more accepted um, but it's not for you and me to make those end-up decisions it's for you and me to preach our differing opinions and, and everybody else to and for the for public opinion to, uh, to let it happen and so that's why I think these discussions are important there are no bad questions like you just mentioned there are no hard conversations that should be swept under the rug they should all be left out in the open and brought out um, to the wonderful antiseptic of sunlight um, and so I'd like to thank you for uh, being here for that
4: thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure
1: you can find links to Bruchim and uh, to Ellie's work in the show notes you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought um, we'd love to hear your, com- your comments and your questions And uh, I'm sure Ellie would love to uh, hear some of them as well. We'll pass them along and we'll maybe see what, uh, what people have to say about this.
2: Our word of wisdom comes from my rabbi, Rabbi Mark Glickman of Temple Bene Tikva in Calgary, Alberta.
5: So there's a story that is told about a guy named Melvin who for years and years prayed to God to win the lottery. God, please let me win the lottery. For years and years, he prayed. And one day after years of such prayers, he said to God, God, I've been praying for all this time to win the lottery and you haven't helped me. What's going on here? And a booming voice came down from on high and said, Melvin, meet me halfway, at least buy a ticket. Well, I thought of that this week, and studying this week's Torah portion, because this week's Torah portion is Vayetzeh. And we read the story of Jacob, who had fled uh, Esau, his brother, and is out in the wilderness. And he comes across a certain place and he lays down, he puts his head on a rock and he has a dream in which he sees a ladder extending to heaven. There are angels going up and down on it. He has this transformative experience in which he receives the covenant from God. And he wakes up and says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. It's a fascinating story. And for you Years, there was something that niggled me about that story, and that is, of all of the things for Jacob to use as a pillow, why would he use... A rock, anybody who's ever been camping knows that you don't use a rock as a pillow, you use a a stuffed, smelly t-shirt or something. You use something that's softer and more comfortable. And as I reflected on it, I realized that Jacob out there in the wilderness, maybe one of the reasons he used the rock to rest his head upon is that when you lay down with the back of your head on a rock, you tend not to wanna lay on your side or on your stomach. You tend to want to have the back of your head down on that rock so that you are looking up to the heavens. It seems to me that maybe one of the reasons God revealed the divine self to Jacob laying out there in the wilderness on that night is that Jacob was open to it. Jacob slept in such a way so that he looked up. Into the heavens. We often hope that something about our religion, something about Judaism, is going to take us away, that we're just going to say, Oh God, I'm here, and somehow the magic's going to happen and we're going to be swept away. But usually that's not how it works. Usually we need to direct our sights and our souls upward first, and only then will God be there to meet us. It's as if God is saying to each of us, just like we were Jacob. Jacob, meet me halfway, at least look to the heavens. So my hope for each of you this week is that you and the rest of us can look to the heavens and, uh, and come away from that moment saying, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Surely this is Beth El, the house of God, a place where heaven and earth touch. Shabbat Shalom.
1: And now it's time in the show where we talk about our nachas, that little thing that made us feel good about the week, something newish, Jewish, something Canadian. Um, Alana, what's your nachas this week?
0: So on November 8th, Canada Post just issued their new Hanukkah stamp, and I didn't know that those existed. The stamp comes in a self-adhesive booklet of 10, and it has a, a white menorah holding nine different candles all around it. Um, I think that's uh, a really cool little marker uh, if you have to send any any mail out during the Hanukkah season. It does beg the, the bigger dilemma that we discussed last week, which I would still love to go into at some point about why we're highlighting Hanukkah over other holidays. But at the same time, I think it's kind of fun.
1: I, I remember hearing about the uh, the Canada Post stamps, uh, I think it was four years ago when they put out a stamp packet, and on the front of the stamp there was a, a Magin David, but they made it yellow. and Some people made this huge issue out of making the Magin David yellow and made them recall those stamps. Those stamps are valuable on eBay now or something, oh, um, I don't know. It's, does that mean you were never allowed to have yellow and Davids anymore? Maybe, maybe, whatever. Uh, that's a totally different discussion, but I remember that being in my radar. I didn't know that they did it every year. Cool. Yeah, so cool. It's the second most Jewish Canada post stamp that I've heard of uh, there behind you Leonard Cohen. Of
0: uh, yes, yes, that was a good He's one. He's our
1: specter um, on this show. David, what's your nachas this
2: week? My nachas for this week goes to Frank Herbert. As many of our listeners know, Mr. Herbert wrote Dune which is now right in theaters. And I went this week, uh, sort of piqued my interest with all the Muslim and Jewish references and I did a little digging. I read the synopsis of all his books and in the fourth installation of Dune Chapter House, our listeners will be happy to know the Jews are still kicking around after 15,000 years. It is the only religion from old earth that survived intact throughout the millennia. So I'm gonna give mad props to Frank for keeping us alive even if we are forced to go
1: underground. That is quite the spicy nachos. (laughs) How about you, Abby? (laughs) Um, I want to talk about uh, this really old movie that everybody may have heard of or... um may not necessarily seen, but the Golem, the Golem was one of the first early uh, sound films Um, and Reboot, which is an organization devoted to rebooting and doing cool new things with uh, Jewish culture um, has commissioned a rescoring of uh, the Golem with various segments and all sorts of episodes talking about the Golem itself. You should absolutely check it out. It's really interesting. It's a full digital series called the Golem Rescored on Reboot's website, rebooting.com. I, I, I found it fascinating. I'm not a big fan of these, like you know. Let's just dive in and re- watch. I I have a hard time. I I understand when I see a hundred year old film, um, the importance and value of it. I just mm-hmm. don't have enough desire to like watch the entire thing. I don't know if you guys have the same no equivalence. You can watch a hundred year old film. Yeah,
0: or, it's great from I beginning love it.
1: to end. I don't know. It's not. I but,
0: love old cinema.
1: But when they have a chance and opportunity to do something interesting with it, all on my own, I guess. There you go. You're disinvited to the film club, the BCFC. (laughs) So that's my yeah. That's my nachas, and um, that's about it for us. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of Parashat Vayetzeh for the week of November 12th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. You can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all your episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at Bonjour at the CJN.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar.
0: The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.